that's just kind of a rule of thumb in negotiating. Like if you get in a contract and there's like 10 things wrong with it, I would pick the top three because if you go in there and, and you want to change basically the entire contract, the other side might get a little fatigued with that. So I think it's important to kind of pick and choose what's the most important to you. Welcome to the Path to Owning It podcast by Provide, hosted by me, Corey Brown, a marketing leader at Provide with over a decade in the healthcare industry. If you found us, you're likely an aspiring or established healthcare practice owner looking for tools and advice to begin your journey or take your practice to new heights. And you're not alone. So to help you achieve your practice ownership dreams twice monthly, we'll tap into our unparalleled network of industry experts who will join us on our quest to provide the answers to your most pressing questions. Like what you hear? Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen. Today, we are discussing what you need to know before signing your associate contract, and we are joined by Hillary harms Bacchetti, founder of Pine Lake Dental Law and Transitions. Hillary grew up in the world of dentistry as both of her parents were dentists. Her first job was working in her parents' dental office, and almost every family vacation was wherever the ADA conference happened to be that year. Needless to say, she has spent her entire life surrounded by the dental profession. So when she graduated from law school, it was no surprise that she decided to focus her legal career on dentists. Pine Lake is a full-service transition company and law firm located in Minnesota, with Hillary performing around 60 dental transitions per year, along with assisting dentists with associate contract review and employment law consulting. Hillary, uh, we're very happy to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I uh, hope now that you're an adult, you have vacationed outside of, let's say, like Orlando or Houston. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I still, I still, uh, every once in a while, I'll speak at a conference and we'll go to Hawaii and I have to bring my husband along too and maybe my kids and, you know, so I I feel like I'm like carrying on that tradition. Now with legal, it's a little, we we have to do CEs too, but Minnesota tends to be a little tricky when it comes to allowing us to take CEs outside the state. So I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to find some of those CEs where I can go to like Orlando or, you know, whatever. Now with small kids, I mean, yeah, it's always Orlando or someplace like that for now. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're so happy to have you on today. We're going to talk about how to kind of decode dental contracts. And I know that you have talked about this a lot. So I think we found the right person to discuss this with. So where do young dentists start looking for a job when they're ready? So, I mean, they look where everyone else looks. You know, there's Indeed, there's Glassdoor. Most dental schools will have their own career page where employers can post job openings. And then I know some like the Minnesota Dental Association has what's called HESI Ray. It's similar to your marketplace, but it also has equipment for sale and job openings for both associates and allied staff. And then also just reaching out to your local transition company. If you have someone that you know, in the state that's known to broker practice sales, chances are they also find associate jobs. You know, there's always a few staffing companies that specialize in dentistry in the state. And then I think the number one thing is just network. You know, when I was in law school, I remember they just pounded that in our head. Network, network, network is the best way to find a job. And I was super skeptical. I was like, ah, you know, maybe it was just laziness too. (laughs) But I realized that, no, you need to network. You need to get out there. You need to go to the meetings, join ASDA, go out there and network with people. Because I tell you, a huge chunk of the D4s that I review contracts for found their job because they knew someone that knew someone that was looking or they they mm. called up their childhood dentist and was like, hey, like looking for an associate, you know, 
So just get out there and get your name out there. And someone, someone should know someone that is looking for someone. And would you say that dentists in this market are in demand? I'm sure it depends on geography, but in general? Uh, yes. In general, they are, especially rural. If you can go rural, oh my gosh, the sky is the limit. Not only do you usually get paid more, but you usually will get a pretty sizable signing bonus. I had a client that it was a large DSO looking in the middle of nowhere, I think southeast coast, and he ended up negotiating a $100,000 signing bonus. And all he had to do was stay for a oh year. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, and he's like, I'm like, you can do anything for a year. He's like, yeah, I can. For $100,000? Yeah, I can. I'm like, yes, <laughs> you can live in the middle of nowhere. Because they have been looking for two years. Same with like Northern Minnesota is, is a classic underserved area. So anywhere that's underserved, man, huge demand. Yeah. What a great tip. I know there are many different types of employers. You mentioned DSO being one, but let's start with private practice. How common is it to find an opening in a private practice these days? I'd say it's at least around here. It's still 80%, I'd say. Private okay. practice, 75%, mm -hmm. 75, 80%. And there's pros and cons to all of it, right? Yeah. And I'll maybe just go over the pros. Private practice, you're, <laughs> you're generally, you actually usually get paid more. You don't work as much. Usually you're working four days a week, sometimes less, sometimes a little bit more, right? Usually better hours. You usually don't get as many benefits as, say, a DSO. But sometimes, sometimes you do, right? Mm -hmm. There's usually more of a, a potential to own in the future or buy in which is really nice, but definitely seeing a lot of private practice. And in terms of the contract, you have a much better chance of negotiating your terms with a private practice. If I get a DSO contract, especially a larger one, now sometimes smaller ones are a little bit more flexible, but the larger DSOs is basically, this is what you get. <laughs> you know, there's some terms <laughs> you can maybe, you know, talk about and negotiate like a signing bonus or maybe a comp. But like for the most part, yeah. they're basically like, this is what you're signing up for. And if I review a contract, I'm like, you're not going to be able to negotiate really anything, but I want you to know what you're signing up for, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned DSOs again. You know, we hear a lot about corporate dentistry. What other differences are there between working for a DSO and private practice, in your opinion? So I would say going to DSOs, you're definitely going to work more. Almost every DSO contract I've seen, you're going to work five days a week, which in the normal world is normal. <laughs> in the real world is normal, right. but in the dental world is a lot, right? Most dental practices aren't open on Fridays or aren't open on Wednesdays or whatever. So you're definitely going to be working full time. The benefit of that is that you will become very productive. I think DSOs can be really good when you're first starting out because they will work you and they will teach you how to be very efficient and productive, which if you decide to become an owner someday, that can really benefit you moving forward. They also, I'd say their number one benefit is CEs they'll offer all the mm. CEs, right? So I always tell my clients, hey, you're not gonna, you're probably not gonna get paid a whole lot. It definitely is on the lower end of pay. I'd say DSOs, I've seen anywhere from 25 to 30% adjusted gross production or collections, which for the private practice, it's more like 30 to 32. But holy moly, they have CEs. So I always tell them like, mm. take advantage, take all the classes, take the implant stuff, take the expensive stuff. Implant classes are really expensive. But if you're working for a DSO, take those free implant classes, take the ortho classes, like learn new skills while you're there. Because then, again, if you decide to buy a practice someday, you can take those skills with you when you go. Yeah, no, that's a great tip for sure. 
And another type that we kind of maybe don't hear about as often, but would be like community clinics. That would also be an option, right, for new dentists. How do yeah. those compare to the aforementioned? Community clinics are same kind of concept in that you'll probably work more, you'll get paid less, but you will also learn to become very, very efficient. And you will end up doing a lot of dentistry that most private practices don't want to do, right? Like you'll be doing a lot of extractions mm-hmm. and and you'll be doing very probably complicated cases. Usually people that are, are in community clinics don't keep up with their dentistry, right? There's also, you know, Native American reservation clinics are a really good option. The VA. And then the nice thing about those places that they is that you get like state benefits or federal benefits, which are awesome usually. So really good benefits, lower pay, but really good experience. And just from an altruistic perspective, you know, you're serving the underserved too. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. And they're always looking too. Yeah. So let's discuss when a new dentist sees a contract for the first time, obviously there's probably a lot in there that doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Are there some kind of basic legal terms that we can equip our listeners with that would help them when they are seeing their contracts for the first time? So I don't really know about legal terms, but I think just terms in general of sort of here's the main terms that you're going to see in a contract. And here are the main terms that you want to watch out for. So obviously, and a lot of it's kind of self-explanatory, right? Like start date, right? Make sure you get a start date. Make sure you're designated as full-time versus part-time because that could affect your benefits, right? Like a lot of times benefits aren't offered to part-time employees because in the dental world, the full-time can sometimes mean 30 hours a week, not 40, right? Right. So you want to make sure that if you are working quote unquote full-time, but you're only working four days a week, you make sure you're designated as full-time. Obviously compensation, make sure that's very clear. I would say the biggest associate contract disputes that I see after you start there or even after you leave is in regards to compensation. Because either it wasn't outlined very clearly or that's usually what it is. It's just not outlined clearly. It's not clarified. One person thinks they're getting paid this way and one person thinks they're getting paid another way. I just had a client recently that was working for a kind of smaller DSO and the recruiting manager told her she was going to be paid this way. But then in the contract, it was totally different. And she didn't notice. Mm. She didn't have anyone review it. She just thought, oh, this is what we talked about, right? She signed this back in February. And then... She started working in, in August and she's like, wait a minute. No, I was supposed to be paid gross collections, not adjusted collections, right? Like that's what I was told. And wait a minute, my base salary is supposed to be this, not this. So making sure that that is very clear, you guys are on the same page is important. Also, you know, benefits, obviously. The term, is it going to be in a kind of an open-ended term? Or are you going to have to work for a year or two years? I would say it's really rare to have an actual you know, you have to work for a year or you have to work for two years. It's usually pretty open-ended. You can terminate at any time. Notice period is probably one of the most important terms. Um, I think people don't realize. I always tell my clients, go into this as if you know you're going to leave, right? Because mm-hmm. nine times out of 10, you're not going to stay at your first job forever, right? So you're probably going to end up leaving at some point in time. And so you got to think of the end game. Like, what if I end up leaving? What's going to happen? And notice periods can really affect you, I think, more, almost more than non-competes because I would say the standard is under 90 days notice period. So if you have anything over that, you're really going to be at a disadvantage, not only finding another job because most other people have a 90-day notice period so they can start sooner. Yeah. But also if you're going to buy a practice, a lot of sellers don't want to wait four months or six months. They want to be able to buy it within that three-month period, right? That's more normal. So it can really have an effect. I had one client that... She missed out on 
two practices because her notice period was six months. So, wow. yeah. And so finally she had, we had to like work something out with her boss because we're like, we can't, this is, this is hindering her from getting a practice, right? So yeah. really important. And then of course, not compete clauses, which vary by state. Uh, Minnesota just July 1st, just passed a partial ban on non-competes for associates. So that's been very wow. exciting and weird. And I don't know. I don't, I don't know how I feel <laughs> about it. Like I'm kind of excited for it, but at the same time, I'm like, I don't know. I've had some employer clients that have really benefited from that, you know, so. Sure. Well, we'll get more into that a little bit later. Too. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, deciding on what type of employer to work for, whether that be private practice, DSO or community, like is working for a private practice, would that be better if they know that they're going to have dreams of ownership later on in life versus working for a DSO or community clinic? I think it can be both. And I think it also depends on if you want to be a partner or a solo practitioner. If mm. you want to be a partner, then I think definitely working for a private practice that has a buy-in option is probably the way to go because then you can possibly buy into that practice and become a partner. If you want to be a solo, I think you could really go both ways. But also working for a private practice is nice because then you get to know what it's like to be in a private practice. So I've actually had lots of clients that have done both just to kind of see what it's like, you know? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And some other parts that are common in a contract would be things like paid time off. You know, mm -hmm. is that an item of importance that should be spelled out within the contract? So definitely. Unfortunately, most associates are paid based on production or collection. So typically associates don't have paid time off. From a legal standpoint, there are essentially three types of employees. There's hourly employees, salaried employees, and commissioned employees. Associates okay. tend to fall under that commissioned employees. And so a lot of times they're not entitled to paid time off, even via laws too. Like we just, again, so Minnesota like had its whole employment law overall this summer. So a lot <laughs> of our employment laws changed. It's been kind of crazy. You know, Minnesota has implemented a sick and safe leave law that basically says you have to give, you know, paid sick leave, but it doesn't apply to mm. commission employees. So I think it's important to outline how much time off you get just because of expectations, right? Because a lot of times employers are like, well, just, you know, tell us how much time off you're going to get and we'll give it to you, right? But right. you don't know what their expectations are. Like, you know, what if they expect you to take off two weeks per year, but you're thinking, no, I'm, I like to travel. I want to take six weeks off per year, you know? I think having that expectation and then that entitlement too, because if they don't outline it, you're not entitled to it. And unfortunately, mm. us as Americans, we are horrible at taking time off. I feel like we always feel bad <laughs> for doing it. So right. I think we need that, like, well, I'm entitled to this, right? Like I shouldn't feel bad for taking time off because I'm entitled to it. So I think there's a mentality thing there too. But I think having actual outlining the time off is important, but it probably won't yeah, be paid. That's a great point. So, <laughs> keep that in mind. Good yeah. to know. Well, Hillary, you know, we've discussed some of the basics of an associate dental contract, but when we return, I'd like to dive into what we receive questions on the most regarding this topic. And of course, that's the compensation structure. So more with Hillary Harms Piketty right after this. Meet the newest reason to finance your dream practice with Provide. The Provide Card, the credit card built specifically for dental and veterinary practice owners. Available in addition to your Provide practice loan, with the Provide card, you'll be transported to a world of new opportunities for your practice, where you can securely make bulk supply orders and earn tailored rewards on your purchases. You can earn up to 3% rewards on healthcare practice and lab supplies, and 1% rewards on all other purchases all the time, with no rotating categories and no point expiration. 
At Provide, we're creating the future of personalized banking for healthcare practice owners. To learn how to apply for your tailored card with tailored benefits, contact your Provide representative or visit getprovide.com slash provide card for more information, including rewards terms and conditions. I'm Corey Brown, and this is Provide's The Path to Owning It podcast. We're back with Hillary Harms Bichetti, founder of Pine Lake Dental Law and Transitions in Minnesota, to pick her brain on common compensation packages for associate dentists and how to navigate them. Hillary, I mentioned, you know, we get this question a lot, so I'm excited for you to share kind of your expertise on this, but can you just share with us some common compensation offers you see in today's market for first-time dentists and associate positions? Sure. Well, so first I'm going to bore you with the history of compensation models and then we'll cut this because I feel like you have to see the background. So before COVID, it's always before or after COVID, right? Yeah. So before COVID, it was very common to have sort of a hybrid model where you would get a guaranteed salary and then you would get a percentage of either, you know, adjusted gross production or collections. And then if you went above and beyond your salary, you would get sort of that difference as a bonus. Then COVID hit and you know, employers were freaking out because they had these guaranteed salaries, but they had this contracted guaranteed salary, but then they had their associate on furlough. And so yeah, there was right. just a lot of like, what do we do? Like, I can't pay them. You know, they're not here. They're not working. And so basically they just like did away with guaranteed salaries. Like I would say there was a local DSO here and it was like the Monday before things were going to open up again or the Sunday before things were going to open up again. And I got like eight emails from associates at the CSO because they had this mass, they basically sent this mass email saying, we're amending your contracts. We're taking away guaranteed salaries. You want to work here? You got to agree to it, basically, you know? And so it was like, it was just crazy. Like they totally went away with it. And I didn't see a guaranteed salary for at least a year. And then they started to slowly start coming back sort of in the form of temporary guaranteed salaries. So an associate would get a guaranteed salary for maybe six months to a year, sometimes three months. And then after that, they would just purely switch over to a percentage of production or collections. And is that to maybe help them like get their feet wet, get in the door, at yep. least have some production right away and then, you know, take off after that? Exactly. Okay. And and it really does help, especially if they're if you're in addition to someone, right? Like the, the practice is growing. They need another associate coming in. And typically in that situation, you're not going to be that busy, right? Because it's not like you're replacing someone where you're taking over this person's patients. It's we're growing and we need someone to kind of help us out, but they're not going to have a ton of patients for you right away. It's going to take take a while to sort of build that up. Yeah. And so it really is important to have some kind of a temporary guaranteed salary, especially if you are in addition to the other doctors. So that's kind of where we're stuck right now. I've started to see... Every once in a while, I'll see just a straight up guaranteed salary plus percentage of production or collections, but it's slowly kind of coming back. But right now we're kind of stuck in that mode of just a temporary one. So which, yeah, in my mind is great. You know, quite frankly, after a year, you should get your production up enough so where you could have a good salary. Right. So and if you yeah. can't, I always say try to get a year because that's usually enough time to determine whether or not you're going to be busy enough. I had a client once that was the only doctor at a satellite practice. And she had a guaranteed salary for a year. And after about month seven, and she was an experienced dentist too. Yeah. And after about month seven, she's like, yeah, I'm not doing enough production for my salary. Like there's no way I can stay here because my salary is going to drop by 20% once I switch over to just purely 
production and collection. It wasn't anything she was doing. It was just that clinic was really slow. So she found another job, basically. So what would you say if someone brought a contract to you that had no temporary guarantee and it was, you know, right off the bat percentage of adjusted gross production? What would your advice be to them? I would ask. Yeah, definitely ask. Ask to see if you could at least get, I mean, I think minimum should be six months, but sometimes you see three. But I think you should at least have a couple months of guaranteed salary. Now, if you're replacing someone, so say a doctor's retiring or, you know, they had an associate in there and they lost one, you might be okay. But I think especially if you are, again, in addition to, you really need that guaranteed salary up front. Yeah. And you mentioned signing bonuses earlier. Is this something that you're seeing that's common or is this kind of a once in a blue moon type of thing? Because I would imagine that'd be really appealing to a young dentist with, you know, probably a lot of student debt. So I would say for sure DSOs, it's much more common with DSOs to get a signing bonus. Now, of course, there's a lot of strings attached. So just be aware of that, right? You're required to stay a year. And if you don't, you have to pay it back. So I always tell my clients, you know, stick it in a high yield savings account for that year. And sure. then once you actually earn it, then spend it, right? But so it's much more common with DSOs, much more common, again, in rural areas where they're really desperate. And that's both private and DSO. I don't see it as much in private practices, like in a more competitive area. So like, say, like in the cities or suburbs and stuff like that, you don't see it as as much. Yeah. It's basically there to entice you to come, right? So Sure. Sure. Just be careful what you're saying with it because it comes with strengths. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Don't spend it right when you get it. <laughs> How would this be different for specialists or is it? Do they have a different structure? Oh, yeah. So I think the basically the only one that's really different for is orthos. The reason being is because most orthos take payment up front or in installments or they bill a lot differently than generals or other specialists. So I'm definitely seeing with orthos, it's more of a per diem. So they'll usually get, you know, $1,200 a day or something like that, right? Um, simply because it's just, it's too difficult to sit there and try to figure out production in collections, right? Say you did on collections. Well, what if they prepaid for half of it, but then you only did, you only worked on that patient for a third of it. You know what I mean? It just it gets too hard. Yeah. So with orthos, it's more of a per diem. Specialists definitely get paid more. So, I mean, I'm seeing high 30s, low to mid 40s percentage-wise. So you definitely make not only more percentage-wise, but it's just more expensive procedures too. So you just make a lot of money. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Can or should, and I think I know what your answer is going to be, can or should dentists negotiate the terms of their contract offer? Yeah, of course. What's the worst they can say? No. I mean, yeah. I do think that you should have help picking and choosing which ones you really want to go after. And that's just kind of a rule of thumb in negotiating, like, right? So if, if you get in a contract and there's like 10 things wrong with it, I would pick the top three to really go after and then kind of take the other ones that are like, okay, I can, I can kind of live with this, right? Because if you go in there and, and you want to change basically the entire contract, the other side might get a little fatigued with that, right? So I think it's important to kind of pick and choose what's the most important to you and really go after that. Keep in mind too, if they... They could say no. And then at that point you think, well, can I work for these people? Right. Mm -hmm. And I've had plenty of times where associates have backed out because they're like, they had some crazy terms in there and, or the pay was really bad or whatever. And they try to negotiate and the practice they were going to work for was just stonewalling them. Right. And this is kind of a litmus test too, of how this place is going to be when you work there. If they seem very open, if they seem very flexible, that's probably how it's going to be working there. If they basically are like, nope, 
take it or leave it, you know, <laughs> then that's probably what they're going to be like when you work there. You know, if you ask for time off, no, you know, like, so I've had some associates who have actually kind of realized during negotiations, like, I don't know if I want to work here. Yeah, no, that's great advice. Now, besides compensation, we talked about benefit packages a little bit earlier. Can you talk about what those kind of typically look like or what we should be on the lookout for in a good contract? So almost every clinic will have a retirement plan. I mean, that really is because by law, if the owners have a retirement plan, they have to offer it to their employees. So that is almost always on the table. Any kind of a match, right? Like a 3% match or 2% match sometimes, but I wouldn't expect it. If you are working somewhere full time, they should pay for your malpractice insurance. I know one of the larger DSOs does not, which is shocking to me. But typically elsewhere, if you are working for somewhere full time, they should pay for your malpractice. They should also give you money, a stipend for CEs, licensing fees and dues. I'd say the average right now is about 3000 a year is what I'm seeing. And what does malpractice insurance typically run per year? Just so we can have an idea. Any idea? I think it's like, it's a little over a thousand, I think, usually. Because sometimes I'll see like, we won't get your malpractice for you, but we'll pay for it. We'll reimburse you. And I usually see like up to $1,200 a year or something. Gotcha. So I think it must be around there. But again, I think it depends on the provider. Now, health insurance, ironically, is usually not available unless you are working for a larger DSO. I always found that funny that, you know, you guys work in healthcare, you don't have health insurance, (laughs) but it's expensive. So I get it, right? But how, but I have to say, I have been seeing it more and more in private practice. So it might be there or they might not have like an actual plan, but they'll give you like $300 a year for an HSA something or other. So those are the main ones, I'd say. And this next question seems to be kind of a hot button issue in some chat groups I'm a part of, but Uh-oh. hoping you can explain or kind of help us understand non-compete agreements and why they seem to cause Dennis so much distress. So non-competes are tricky because it's state by state. So there's no federal guidelines or anything like that. There's really not even usually statutes. So it really comes down to court precedents and then it's industry by industry. So I would say that's why it's really important to have a dental specific attorney look this over for you because they can tell you, okay, our industry, this is standard in this area, blah, blah, blah. Now, it's hard because it's a balancing act. So on one hand, and that's, this is what the courts actually look at and decide on is the rights of an employee to be able to find work elsewhere versus the rights of a business to protect their business interest, right? So mm-hmm. having an employee who has been there for five years and knows their patients and staff opening up a shop next door is probably going to be pretty detrimental to their business. Not only that, but being able to solicit patients, solicit employees, you know, probably not a great thing, right? And so... On one hand, I can see the argument of having at least a nominal non-compete, especially solicitation clauses. But I've also had a lot of clients who have had to lose out on very good opportunities like buying a practice or a really good job they wanted to work at because they had this non-compete that was, in my mind, probably too restrictive, right? And so it's hard because I can see both sides. Sure. So if you had to write a non-compete clause, let's say, that favored associate and owner, Where's that kind of like middle ground? What does that typically look like or does it exist? (laughs) So there's three parts of a non-compete, right? There's the mile radius restriction. There's the non-solicitation of patients and the non-solicitation of employees and sometimes referral sources for specialists. So with the mile radius, it really depends on population. That's what it kind of comes down to if you're going to break it down. How many dentists can this community hold? And so if you're much more populated area, like, you know, cities, 
it's anywhere from one to five miles. But the farther out you go, the farther out that radius. I would say a more industry standard is about 10 miles. And then, of course, there's the how long does that last? The max in almost every state is two years. But, you know, sometimes you can negotiate down to one year. But in my opinion, the most important part is the mile radius piece. I mean, I literally have like a mile radius map that I can zoom in and out, right? Like, okay, this takes out this city. This is, you know, yeah. like, can you live with that? Are you okay with that? And then there's a non-solicitation clauses. So obviously, you know, solicitation of patients. Some states allow you to go even further and even say you can't solicit or treat patients. Oh, wow. In Minnesota, you can't do that. You can't restrict treatment because in Minnesota, the courts have found that patients have rights to see the healthcare provider of their choice. So if they go find you of their own volition, that's okay, but you just can't solicit them. That used to be the thing that they cared about the most, but now it's employees. Sure. So that's the big one. You can't solicit or hire employees for two years after you leave. That's the one that everyone cares about right now because I don't know about where everyone else is, but I know up here we have a staffing shortage. Yeah. So it's pretty competitive to get good staff. Yeah. We're hearing that a lot on different episodes of the show as well. That, uh, you know, it's so bad. Yeah. I know. So that makes a lot of sense that that's now the kind of the more important part of the non-compete for sure. But then also look at your state and see if you even have one. I know, I mean, again, we just passed the ban. You can no longer have mile radius restrictions as in you can work next door and that's okay. You can still have solicitation clauses, but you can no longer restrict. You can't work five miles away. North Dakota has a statutory. They basically completely ban them. So, you know, it just depends on your state too which is why it's good to have a lawyer look it over. Yeah, but. absolutely. Leading me into my next question here, I, I'm sure there are many reasons why it's important to have a dental-specific attorney on your side, but what do you think the most important thing is when it comes to reviewing associate contracts? Making sure everything is clarified and you guys are on the same page. That's really what it comes down to. The worst enemy of a contract is vague and ambiguous language, right? If you guys aren't on the same page, if you guys don't know what you signed up for, then that's where you end up having problems. So the most important thing for me is to make sure everything makes sense, everything's clarified, both sides are on the same page. Because you'd be surprised, even the most well-drafted contract by a lawyer can have language you're like, what was that? How does that work? You know, yeah. like, I can't even understand what you're trying to say, right? Because, I mean, I've gotten contracts that were drafted by the office manager and it's like one page, wow. you know? So I'm just like, what? You know, <laughs> so they kind of run the gambit or what is really super common is they use the contract that some lawyer drafted up years ago with their first associate. And they've just been kind of using the same contract, making changes here and there yep. to the point where like, now you're contradicting your, you know, <laughs> it's like just a mess, right? So just making sure that everyone knows what you are signing up for. That's great advice. And Hillary, if someone here is listening uh, in the states of Minnesota, Wisconsin, and South Dakota that would like to work with you, how can they reach you? Just go on pinelakelaw.com. And that should have all my contact information. Email is probably the best just because in that way we can set up a call. My sister is also an attorney working with me and she's licensed in Missouri and Kansas too. So if you're in those states, we can also help you out. And then my phone number is on the website. So fantastic. Well, Hillary, this discussion has been so enlightening. Thank you for breaking down the dental associate contracts for us and helping us understand what we should and shouldn't be looking for. So your time and expertise is very much appreciated. Well, thank you for having me. This is fun. Thanks for joining us. Because you've listened to this whole episode, we assume you were entertained or at the very least learned something new. If so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Have a topic you'd like discussed in a future episode? Drop us a line in the comment section or send us a message on social media. If you're ready to take your practice ownership dreams into your own hands, 
be sure to visit getprovide.com to pre-qualify and browse our practice marketplace or check out our news page for more helpful resources. The Path to Owning It is brought to you by the team at Provide and it's produced by PodCamp Media, branded podcast production for businesses, podcampmedia.com. Producer Dusty Weiss, editor Matt Covarubias. For Provide, I'm Corey Brown. Thanks for being on the journey with us. Provide is a division of Fifth Third Bank National Association. All opinions expressed by the participants are solely their current opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Provide, its affiliates, or Fifth Third Bank. The participants' opinions are based on information they consider reliable, but neither Provide, its affiliates, nor Fifth Third Bank warrant its completeness or accuracy and should not be relied upon as such. This content is for informational purposes and does not constitute the rendering of legal accounting tax or investment advice or other professional services by Provide or any of its affiliates. Please consult with appropriate professionals related to your individual circumstances. All lending is subject to review and approval.